Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series on governing during pandemic. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about how local governments and organizations are responding and adapting to our shifting needs during this public health crisis. So Casey, we've been talking a lot um, over the last few episodes about how we're responding when to um, stay-at-home orders and to um, social distancing and the impact that COVID-19 and the pandemic has had on our communities across Northeast Ohio and across the country and around the globe. You know, one of the things that that brings up for me is how how is this impacting already vulnerable populations and this sense of safety? Right. So, I mean, I think about individuals and, and marginalized communities, you know, in Northeast Ohio, but around the globe that are in need of safe spaces, right? And we know that we have people in uh, the Northeast Ohio area that have worked uh, long and hard as advocates to, you know, and, and engaged in civic engagement and to create these safe spaces. And just because there's a pandemic doesn't mean that there, you know, evaporates the need for safe spaces. And in fact, in many cases, it probably increases the demand for these. But how do you offer those badly needed safe spaces when you have to have, right, social distancing and you have to have a shelter in place order? And and the reason why you have to have these things is because you need to create safe spaces too for the folks that are doing the work and that are that are engaged in civic engagement. Um, so so how you do that and how that happens can be a really tricky thing. One of the things, right, so in our last episode, we talked to um, Katie Carver-Reed about, you know, access to resources, so food security and access to food as, you know, one of those really important um, services that we're providing to vulnerable populations. But the population uh, at large, really, right? Like, what that means? How do we? How are we making sense of it? But this week, we're talking to someone uh, that's doing slightly different work. Could you? Could you help us uh, introduce our guest for this week? Right, absolutely. And so we know that it's imperative that we care about physical safety, right? And that's why we're all staying at home. And that's why we're all social distancing is so that our physical health and safety is maintained. But there's other layers to being safe, and that is mental health. And that for some communities and some community members, mental health can be a really precarious thing. And so today we're going to be talking to Phyllis Seven-Harris, who works at uh, the Cleveland's LGBTQ Community Center. I'm so excited to, to be able to speak with her today and to share her with our audience. Right. So we're really excited today. Um, We have with us uh, Phyllis Seven-Harris. For many years, she's played a strong role as an advocate in Cleveland's LGBTQ plus community. Under the direction of Ms. Harris, since 2012, the LGBT uh, Community Center of Greater Cleveland has experienced unprecedented growth and expansion. Today, the center patrons enjoy expanded programming, for everyone from teens to families to seniors in their Gordon Square facility. In 2015, the center launched Pride in the Clee, a family-oriented, community-driven LGBTQ pride festival that the group continues to produce annually. 
In June 2019, Ms. Harris and her team moved into a newly constructed facility that offers more space, accessibility, and versatility to serve the LGBTQ community. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Zama, I wonder, can you tell us about your role at the LGBT Community Center of Cleveland and what drew you to this work? I'm the executive director of the LGBT Community Center. I've always worked for nonprofit organizations, typically those with like socially charged missions, like the Rape Crisis Center and Preterm and Planned Parenthood. And, um, you know, these organizations that allow me to uh, address some of the challenges that I, you know, have in now um, as I've learned more around the intersections and where I live, you know, around gender and race and really in support of people who, who live on the margins, who are discriminated against. And so I was, you know, doing my regular nonprofit thing in 2007 and nine. And um, it was around the economic downturn. And I got, I got canned from a position that I was doing really well at, at, (laughs) and it wasn't because of my performance. It was because um, the organization needed to downsize its staff during the economic downturn. And so my entire team was um, eliminated except for one person and they didn't keep me. I joined boards. It was difficult to, to find work, but I joined, I, you know, I found some consulting work and I joined boards and I joined the board of community shares because you know, I'd never given money away. And so I wanted to see what that was like. And I joined the board of an arts organization, Spaces Gallery, because they didn't have a really, really strict give get. And I'd never worked as a nonprofit practitioner for an arts organization. And so I got to learn all about what it's like to be in leadership at an arts organization. I was on these boards, I was making a piddly bit of money, but loving my job at Planned Parenthood. I got a call to join the board of the center and I was just like, oh no, you know, I can't, I can't do that. I'm, I'm just, you know, just can't, I'm too busy. And then they asked again and they said, we really think you can help. help." And I said, oh no, you know, honestly, the truth is I'm broke. I don't have enough money. <laughs> I'm already on two boards, you know? And then they said, well, we think you can offer something else. Would you just come in and meet us? At that time, I remember it sort of vividly, you know, gets embellished as I get older and, you know, I've been around longer um, at the organization. But I remember walking down the stairs of our former location and thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to join this board, you know? And so, and then um, four months later, I became the executive director um, p- because part of our job as new board members, um, joining an expanding board at the time was to um, hire an executive director. And they were looking to hire a part-time person. And I was just like, you all have got to be kidding. This is a 60-hour-a-week job. You know, I was talking all this, you know, because I was a board member then. And then I threw my hat in the ring. And I and it's a long story, but it's important um, as it relates to the story of the center's transformational growth in the last um, eight years now. So that's how I got to the center. Um, I really um, tell people that I don't necessarily work there because I'm a lesbian. I am, I was a lesbian in all my jobs and out. And I really love the sector and the work that I do. And it, there was a huge opportunity to take what I knew and um, had learned, you know, in, in other organizations and bring a network of other nonprofit experts with me to this position to be able to help grow um, the center. Seven, can you tell us a little bit about the LGBT Community Center? You know, our programs, we exist um, basically to provide supportive services, uh, an affirming um, and safe place, resources, connection, 
advocacy for LGBTQ people in Northeast Ohio. And so we've been around for 45 years doing that. So I always tell, tell folks we made magic, you know, in the locations prior to the beautiful um, facility that we have now through the work that, you know, many people did. Our programs include programming for older adults. And so our SAGE program, we have affiliated with a national organization that provides advocacy and education around LGBT older adults because people forget we get old. But we do get old. And so um, SAGE was a great affiliation for us and allowed us to help build our programming for individuals who are 55 and older. I think it's 50 and older. So I'm in that category, 55. But I don't go to SAGE yet. But... (laughs) It's a great program um, that we offer three days a week at the center. And so our seniors show up there at about 1030 and three days a week. They have social time. They have um, educational presentations. People come in and talk about issues um, relevant to their lives, workshops around, you know, safeguards against falling, um, you know, keeping engaged, things that help deal with supporting them around um, feeling uh, feelings of isolations and things like that. Exercise. Tai Chi, yoga, program developed by the Arthritis Foundation, like range of motion, exercise, social events. You know, they travel, they um, they go to Edgewater, you know, our parks. And so it's a great program for our seniors three days a week. And then we provide lunch. And so we know that that is a, a, a great benefit for many of our seniors to be able to come and sit down and break bread with other people, you know, we often have young people as interns. Sometimes our youth are engaged in some programming with our seniors. And so it's pretty, uh, pretty awesome. Um, in addition to that, we have QU programming for our young people. So we're, we're talking about serving individuals at the LGBT center from probably around age 11 until, you know, whatever age. And so our QU programming um, really focuses on those who are 11 to 18, 11 to 19, I think. And we have um, drop-in time three days a week for our QU participants. So, you know, once they are out of school, 3.30, 4 o'clock, they start trickling into the center. And then they have drop-in time until about 6, I believe. And that time, you know, they have access to our gaming equipment and there are snacks there that they've chosen in, in a um, like a pantry that they could have access to of a cyber center so that they have access to computers if they need help with homework. You know, there are folks there who can help them with that. And then after that, some of the youth will um, have self-selected into a program called um, Power Up, Power Out. We believe in um, leadership development for LGBT people, Q people in general, and certainly for our youth. Um, Our philosophy is that we dare not leave anyone behind. We are part of a movement. We have not forgotten that we are activists. And I have to remind many people all the time, especially when I make bold moves about not doing what the status quo says, that, oh, I'm an activist. Um, I love I love it. And it's challenging when I have to remind my board. But um, often um, you'll see our spirit around activism come up. Um, through our programming in terms of why we uh, present them the way that we do and that we are very clear that we are still fighting for our lives. And so our QU programming allows for young people to go through an application process to be selected to learn community organizing, right? They can learn community organizing. They can learn how to advocate on behalf of themselves in their schools. 
home, in the workplace. They go through a 12-week, it's a 12-week curriculum. It's evidence-based. And so we, we took a look at, you know, some of the most, the evidence-based curriculum, and we've added some of those elements. It's engaging. Um, they have a stipend. And so every, if they complete three modules, you know, they get, you know, maybe it's 50 bucks or a gift card or something like that. So they don't have to complete all 12, but if they do, you know, they can complete the program and then they're eligible to be center youth ambassadors, you know. Um, so they, they, they continue to, to learn about community organizing, um, participatory based research. We get them involved in a lot of really interesting and engaging um, projects, you know, so that they know how to advocate for themselves. And then there's all the fun that they have around um, raised garden down the street. We have activities for our youth. We have special guests who come in for our youth. Right now, they're participating in virtual programming, and we'll probably talk a little bit more about that. But like, there's a meditation and art session that happens on Fridays with our youth, and they're being right now recruited to participate in our online blog. We have a new blog that we're going to be launching. So very active with our youth. Trans wellness programs. <clears throat> so people who identify as trans or non-binary or gender non-conforming can participate in our trans wellness programming. It's primarily focused on social time, social time and uh, a place where, you know, trans and, um, and gender non-conforming folks can get together. There's dinner. So we provide dinners twice a week. There's information about prep. We do prep outreach. There's information about job readiness. There's access to attorneys through our partnership with Equality Ohio and our legal clinic. And, you know, just basic, you know, again, fun and social time for folks who identify as trans and gender nonconforming. Lots of affinity groups. Um, we have, you know, without God. We have, I can't remember, the, the young adult group. Um, so we have all sorts of affinity groups. And the way that they work is if someone is interested in, in having space at the center to host a group related to any LGBTQ plus, you know, um, identities or, or, or um, issues or activities, they can. We ask that they go through our process of attending the facilitators training. So we have a facilitator's training that they go through and they get support to be able to facilitate the group at the center. We have, like I said, several groups, but and we also have partnerships with other organizations. Um, we know that we couldn't do the work on our own and we are subject matter experts when it comes to queer identities and you know, we leave the mental health expertise to the people who do mental health work. And so what we would rather do is partner with an organization and and really, you know, have them have an immersion experience into queer culture and learning who we are, what our issues are, allow us to provide training for their, their staff, those who are going to be engaging with us, hopefully the whole organization. And then have them come to our, our space to deliver their, their services. So we partner with Signature Health in Cleveland and Signature Health does work around uh, addiction and mental health. And so we have an intensive outpatient program that Signature Health operates out of our center three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. They're there at the center from 10 to 1 and they operate their group there. It's, it's, it's a fantastic partnership because, you know, the LGBTQ community is being served. They're coming to the center and we can generate revenue as an organization for all of you nonprofit practitioners thinking of, 
thinking about being entrepreneurial and what it takes to, to really be, you know, to, to be a sustainable organization. You got to like raise some money, some other kinds of ways <laughs> other than events. There is a, a, a ample opportunity in, in partnering with other organizations and ensuring that they are culturally competent and bringing them in. Signature Health does that. We have a partnership with Metro Health, which is our public hospital here in, in Cleveland. And um, Metro Health um, delivers primary care from the center. They have their pride, LGBT pride clinic, one of them. They have several, but one of them at the center right now, once a week. And they have since since starting in in um, November, it's been so successful and, and like, duh, right? Like, so if, you know, that they are expanding to two days and we actually were in negotiations around what day and all of that right before we shuttered our doors to flatten the curve. But two days a week with primary care at the center, it has been really great, a great partnership. People are going to the doctor now because um, it's accessible. Um, it, it's in a place where they feel safe. And um, we happen to have a, a building design that it works out really well. Um, so that's just a couple of the, the, the major partnerships that we have and partner in other ways with even individuals. We have you know, a licensed social worker, who um, rents our office space there, a, a tiny little space once a, or twice a week to deliver um, therapy. And so it works out really well. And again, it generates revenue. And, you know, I really love that model. So I could talk about that all day. So partnerships, um, our core programs, Trans Wellness, QU, and our SAGE program, we have a cyber center that's accessible. We offer all sorts of sort of like pop-up events. For instance, we um, parents, we have um, a space now that is street level accessibility, you know, um, it makes it a, a lot more easy to be in our space. And so we're developing programming for families. And so we have a program that's like, like a pop-up parenting event that happens about once a month, typically on a Saturday. And it's for families with children under 10. And it's fantastic. I stand and look out the windows now that we have windows. We were in the basement before. At some point, I'll stop making references to that. <laughs> I was on, on the second floor and it was the first day of this, you know, pop-up Saturday family event that we were having. And we bought these tents and these these snacks and juice boxes. And we were like all excited and, you know, waiting to see what was going to happen. And I could look out the window and I would see, I would see like this dad with two kids and these two men with, you know, three kids and this woman with, you know, a kid on her hip and a kid in a stroller and they were all coming to the center. I was like, this is beautiful. You know, this is, this is what, what we need. So that's what we do. Right. So that in a nutshell is what the center does. It provides like needed and vital services for social, emotional care, for health and wellness, connection, affirmation, you know, and we are, I tell folks, we are a community center. And so as we have established ourselves as an anchor organization in Gordon Square, where we're located, very visible, the community around us, we care about the community in general. So we are a community center, come in, Pre-COVID, you could have a free cup of coffee from our coffee station. <laughs> now we'll just have some bottled water or some juice. But you can come in and have a cup of coffee. You can use our cyber center. You can use the restroom. You can hang out in our lounge. lounge. But we are also a cultural center. So when you step into our doors, you're leaving heteronormativity and you're stepping in to queer immersion, to queer culture. We, we have a culture. And so we, we represent that as well. 
any anywhere that will have us, you know, in terms of being able to deliver good information about who we are. It's, it's incredible the work that you guys are doing. And it sounds like really your role in the community is is community center, cultural center, and as you said, this this anchor that kind of pulls everything together within this one um, package. It's it's incredible work that you're doing. So I'd like to hear a little bit more. How did the LGBTQ community center and the, these resources come to be? What's the history of this? How was this developed in Cleveland? Yeah. So, you know, like I said, the, the center is um, celebrated 45 years this month, May 8th one of the first established centers in the nation. Uh, you know, it, I, I heard that we were third, but then I read that we were fifth. And so somewhere between third and fifth, <laughs> we were we were established. I um, really did some great work um, in Gordon Square in our former location, um, but we were in the basement and we had about a used space. It was, it was total probably about 75 square feet. It's about 5,000 square feet that was used. And I got there as a board member, really excited, you know, try, you know, trying to make a comeback myself, you know, um, after the economic downturn. And the organization at that time, the operating budget was about $260,000. And there were three staff and we had one active grant proposal and <laughs> I had no donor database. There was the hard drive existed, which mattered, but we were on some other system and I had, I didn't know how to, who the donors were or how to think. So there was so, there was nowhere to go, but up, you know, like I, people like <laughs> I, you know, I like did one or two things and, and then a freaking rock star there, you know, but what I saw was the opportunity. And so I got there and say, you know, say by the time I was hired officially in, in May of 2012 with that situation, Part of the reason why they were hiring a, an ED is because um, the organization had received a bequest. They had not solicited this bequest, you know, but those things are great. <laughs> and so the organization had received the bequest and it was like a significant amount, um, just under $400,000. They were trying to reserve some of it. So the thinking was they wanted to hire a part-time ED and then take some of the other money and do a renovation. Get, get the center up to street level so that people could see it would be more visible. Um, maybe, you know, the thinking was even that maybe the center was obsolete. And I, I got there and I was just like, are you kidding? Have you talked to queer people about what our lived experiences are? Not obsolete. What we didn't have was the ability to tell the story about it. We were hidden. We were in a basement. We were doing the work. The work was happening minimally with a small budget, but really uh, not visible. And I got in there and, you know, there was this plan and I kept asking questions. And ultimately, by December, we decided not to do the renovation, that we didn't even have enough money for that. Things were looking dire, but things were getting better because I started talking to folks and partnering with folks. And so in December of that year, I got a call. And I didn't, um, they want this, the person on the call wanted to meet and I am Googling the name because I'm like, who is this? <laughs> you know, like I don't have any donor records, you know, <laughs> like I'm looking at this person up and they said, we'd like to meet. And I said, how can I prepare for the meeting? And this, you know, I, I love to teach this part because there's simple questions that you can ask around. If you stay curious, there's some gems in that. So I, I, I asked, how can I prepare for the meeting? And they said, well, we saw an article um, that this, about this decision, the center's decision not to move. We canceled the renovation, we dropped in a little article and kind of like sheepishly kept moving. And um, they noticed it. 
gave me a call and said they wanted to talk about it. I said, who, I said, how do, how do I, uh, that, that was, how do I prepare for the meeting? And then I asked, who else would you like me to invite? No one else, just you. So long story short, that was the beginning of what I now call a partnership. So when I get asked to come and do presentations or, or panels about fundraising, I talk about the gift of, you know, when you're in um, nonprofit management or a, a fundraiser, when you get that donor that you partner with. I, I had a vision, this donor had a vision, and we figured it out. And so that December, I got that call. They asked for a meeting. They asked me to come back with a plan to spend up to $1 million to, for a new facility and for some staff. Now, the initial call was for a new facility. And they asked me all about myself. And they said, we want the, the, the center to have a, a new place, a new location. I said, that would be fantastic. I said, but it wouldn't be a good investment. And here's why. And that was a risky move, but it was the truth. And I said, I said, we don't have the infrastructure. I said, it will be closed in a year. I, I'm, you know, I'm a, a nonprofit geek. So I read about nonprofits who get these opportunities and they don't have a plan around sustainability. And the next thing you know, you know, all of that good work, all of those good people who invested so much. And I didn't want that to happen. And so I began to say, but it wasn't a sob story. I began to, I had my board list. I have a strong board. Look at this leadership. Um, we have um, we have this opportunity <laughs> that we're going to be bringing, you know, to th this organization. Here's what we've done so far. And so they bought it. What happened was we partnered and they began to see that I needed a program director. I need someone who is an office manager. Because of that, it's been a great relationship um, over the last, it's, um, it's been well, so eight years or seven years, and we still we are still in communication. Um, this is not the donor um, controlling what happens at the center. The the tail wagging the dog. It's not that. It really truly is a partnership where I say, here's what I know. Here's what we will need for that. Here's what what this is going to look like. And so I've had some other really strong partnerships um, with the architect for the building, where we can I could talk about programming. So that when we constructed the building, when I bring you in for a tour, because you're going to want to come see it, walk you through, you can see how we were thinking about program delivery and how it how it works within the building, which is a joy. So that's how that happened. So right, so now we're at about five million, five, 5.1 million from this particular angel donor who we um, refer to as TAD, the anonymous donor. I love it. That's amazing. I mean, that story is amazing because it really, um, it, it, you know, it complements your history within this organization. It, it shows the growth of this organization and this, this need um, of the, the work that you're doing and the, and the creative ways that you can respond when you have resources and capacity, right? So that you can, you can continue to do this work. So much of what you've been talking about has been around sharing space, right? Your new facility, the community work that you're doing. And so I'm actually going to jump um, a little bit here and just ask, we're in the middle of a pandemic. COVID-19 has resulted in stay-at-home orders. As we're recording this, we're still, we're recording this from our from our homes. How has this shaped your work? How are you all responding? 
uh, I'm so relaxed right now, but not, you know, overly relaxed. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to wear my mask and wash my hands. This is not an easy time for many nonprofits. The center has had its, you know, ups and downs. Um, I think that we finally are at a place where we have a sustainable model. So what happened was we, um, what, what was already in place was I had, I had finally, I, like I had a sweet spot for the number of staff that I needed on the development, marketing, and communication side of things. <laughs> because without a development director, without a development associate, someone helping to make sure we're thanking our donors and our donor databases is, is you know, it's, you just, it's just a setup for failure, you know, like, and so I operated a lot with just, with only one person who worked really hard, but and came with skills of a grant writer and, 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 and special events. And we had this opportunity for a capital, we had a, camp, a comprehensive campaign and millions of dollars. And I finally got some staff at the end of last year. We need to invest in order to make money. So convince your boards of that. We get in and uh, I get them in. I got the marketing and communications person in. I got the development associate in. I got the development director in. I got a program director. And then I have support staff in all the ways myself. So when this hit, we knew to go to work, right? We had already began. Um, we were, you know, had had a, a strong year-end campaign. We were looking towards spring. We were we were going to be raising some money. Um, we were in this building. We had to prove that we can we could sustain, and, and it's not just a pretty building, right? And so we're working, 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 working all full steam ahead. COVID hits, and we're like, wow. So that spring appeal became the COVID response appeal. We were able to we were able to pivot quickly. We got people working, thinking about. We knew that we likely we were going to have to close. My the initial reaction from my board of direction directors was what? What do you think it was? Come back to me with the plan to cut the budget by fifty percent. About lost my mind. Hung up the phone so I didn't lose my job. Call back later. And we had a we had a plan. And so we came up with a plan where we pulled in these experts. We looked at our numbers. We said, we don't need to do that. There's this opportunity that's coming. So we got to work. And that work included the payroll protection program and making sure that we were eligible and listening and tapping into that. And so we got funding the first round of that. Um, and then it also, the work also included paying attention to what was happening with our local response uh, foundations. Um, response. And that was um, um, the Cleveland has, the Cleveland Foundation um, has coordinated this response with several foundations. Cleveland Foundation is a community foundation here for COVID rapid relief fund. And we made sure we were eligible and we, on the third round, received funding there. We stayed in communication with our, 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 our program officers. And that, in fact, they were mostly calling us and saying, you know, that money we just gave you for that special project, if you need it for operating during this time, all you need to do is let us know. So I felt I I love being able to say nice things about foundations, you know, um, <laughs> and in this sector and how, you know, we didn't have to jump through a hoop for something, you know, they, they, they really um, are, are being supportive here. And here's the key. All of that could have been true. And I don't still think that we would have been, we could have been successful in, in that had we not said, we're activists, we need to stay visible. We are the people who are going to be most negatively impacted by this pandemic. We have issues around 
jobs. We can get married, but uh, we can still be legally fired. There's no federal protections. There's no statewide protections. We live with immunodeficiencies. Some of us, we are susceptible to all sorts of um, challenges around housing insecurity, employment insecurity, food insecurity, all of those statistics around folks who live on the margins and are discriminated against include LGBTQ folks. And so I kept saying, this is the time to fire up our, our activist wings. We, you know, it, it is not sitting around and hoping that people will think about L the LGBTQ community. It's, it, there's too much to think about. So if you're not saying, what about queer people? What about LGBTQ people, what about, you know, if you're not doing that, then people are going to forget you. And I was like on fire and I, I got my, my team looking and heading and thinking in that direction. And I finally got my board thinking in that direction because their jobs, right, is to protect the center, to protect the asset. You can't do that hiding. I tell you that. So now I'm, I'm really curious, um, what has been the response of the community to the pandemic? I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure that they know firsthand that they're being affected by this in very significant ways. Has there been an increased demand for services? And what are some of the concerns really that you're hearing from your constituents? Pretty interesting. So we were able to pivot really easily. Um, not easily. I won't say that. <laughs> I have a great team. They worked hard. We were able to pivot. Um, within about the first week, we, we we shut down. We began to organize the what we will be doing. The second week, we we began to to roll things out. Uh, the third week, we were up and running with virtual programming, and so our youth programs, our Sage program, are all um, um, online have online um, aspects to it. Our youth program primarily only online access to it. Our Sage program. Um, it's online and we're making phone calls. Um, so we have um, trained volunteers. There's a separate new mini training that you can go through specifically on making wellness calls or friendly visitors calls. And so we get partnered with an, an LGBT older adult and then we check in on them maybe once a day, once a week. It depends on what they want. And so we're able to do that through those connections. And um, we also provide food for some of our folks who we knew were there for the eight years that I've been there. Every Monday, Wednesday, Friday are there for part of their 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 weekly meals, you know, like. And so we made sure that they have have food. Um, so mostly um, some of them, you know, that the, the challenges is the isolation. You know, the center was the place that they came, especially our older adults for their social engagement um, opportunities. And so there, we have some challenges around food. We have some challenges around fear, around going to regular doctor's visit. It took a while, but now we're making a lot of mental health referrals where people, you know, just there's, there's a lot of fear. And so that from our seniors, from our youth, we were really concerned, but, you know, we're into like the fourth week, we got the programs up and running and we're getting youth part participation in our drop-ins, but it's not the ones that we typically see who come to the center. We know their stories. We know that when they get there, they change their clothes. They put on the clothes that makes them feel alive. They spend their three hours at the center. They 
change their clothes, and then they go home, you know? And so we weren't seeing them. And there was a lot of concern and really sadness. I, you know, this is a part where I'm like, this is not just about work. You know, I'm watching my coworkers feel sad. You know, they're already dealing with their, their loss. And then they're, they're, they, they don't know where these, these kids are, you know? And so uh, about four weeks in, um, so we're all trying to scramble, like, how do we find them? You know, what's going on? They started popping up, you know, like, and the issue is they don't have strong internet access. They have phones, but they don't have enough, what do you call it, bandwidth to so jump, jump into, into a, um, a Zoom call or a Facebook Live. And more than not, when we ask the question, where you been? How you doing? They're okay except they're uh, and they're saying i just want to come back to the center i miss being at the center so these are the youth that need the fit the safe place there are other youth that don't that we that didn't come to the center maybe they, they didn't fit their schedule maybe that that are all our virtual youth now so what we've learned is that through this experience is that we're going to keep our virtual programs we'll have our you know, face-to-face programming. Um, we'll do the social distance um, dance for as long as, you know, our government says, um, and medical professionals and the CDC said, says it's, it's uh, it, we should, um, but we need both. So we're finding that with our youth. Um, our, our, um, we, we are still doing street outreach. So one of our staff members, Divinity, um, what we say is, you know, people, not everybody stops working. So people who do sex work, they need um, hygiene kits, kits and they need prep copay cards. And so we're giving prep cards and we're giving out um, safer sex um, supplies. Um, and then some of them, um, depending on how they're doing, we're, we're checking in about food. Um, so we have about every two weeks, we have about $45 worth of food that we can a budget that we can purchase for up to 20 people. So we're doing that kind of that kind of stuff in response and, and have learned that people just mostly miss um, the center as a resource, internet, food, supplies, HIV testing, you know, like, so um, we have seen that. One of the things we've been, you know, been benefiting from in many ways is that um, in these conversations, we're learning so much about how individuals and organizations, be they nonprofits or governmental entities, are responding. Um, that we've actually seen some and heard some pretty amazing success stories. Do you have any uh, success stories that you're able to share, like how you how you were able to rise to the challenge and meet unanticipated needs? Um, I mean, you've alluded to some of them, but do you have any of your favorite success stories? I was saying up until actually this week so far and last week, so up until last week, we were get we would get a call about once a week from someone who was advocating for someone who's trans identified, who was challenged with housing. The situation they were in was not, wasn't safe. Um, so some of the success stories have been to get that call there are times would have, when it would have taken in, out, over, around, maybe, you know, now, in a minute. Our partners are on it. They understand. They are, they are um, telling, you know, getting to the individuals, making sure they are assessed, making sure they have housing, making sure it's a safe place for people who are trans identified. That doesn't mean that we're getting all the calls to get everybody who's challenged like that. But I, I have noticed that 
it's it feels as as much as we're in a pandemic, people are responding and making sure folks are um, who are at least we've reached out about uh, have been taken care of. The success story I want to always tell, though, just has to do with being able to keep my team employed and being able to bring in nonprofit experts to look at our, you know, our, our finances and um, our forecasting and um, the opportunity and say, look, don't freak out. We are who we serve. I have people who are trans identified in positions at the center. If they don't have a job, so the, so the fight, so, so I get to, it's a privilege. I get to um, work at a place where um, I'm advocating on behalf of, you know, uh, um, individuals, people, and we are the people. I'm close enough to it that I can see what the need is and we can respond to the need. Um, and, you know, and some of us have more, more or less privilege than others, you know, within our staff, but collectively we got our eye on it. We can say, here's what's, here's what's going on and here's what the need is. So, you know, it's a little bit sort of like convoluted, not like a, a hardcore, um, but I think this is the story of the center um, of being able to say like, wait, we don't have to do it like everybody else is doing it. What else can we do? Um, if we if we can come out out of this with the disparities and the loss that we always that we all 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 experience, if you're core identified, if you have privilege or not, you're experiencing some. But some people ain't gonna mess with you, right? If we can come away from this pandemic, a, a whole lot of us, you know, grounded, somewhat safe, relatively safe, being able to take care of ourselves being able to continue to grow around our, our, our own professional and personal development uh, and our own health and um, well-being, our mental health, our physical health, then that, that's the story I want to tell. I mean, so you guys have just been so successful um, so far and, and, and continue to be successful through this pandemic. What is it, though, that the public can do to support the mission of the center at this time? Can they get involved? Can they voice concern about, you know, issues from right, the Ohio Fairness Act or something else? How can they help you, given the power and voice that they might have? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. Um, most people ask well, how we can help them. <laughs> um, so I really appreciate that. I think um, we are still um, accepting volunteers. Uh, Denise uh, Astorino is our um, community engagement coordinator. And so we have volunteer opportunities that um, friendly visitor program. Right now, I think we have about 25 volunteers. Um, folks can check in about that. We'll get people plugged in. Um, we want people to have meaningful volunteer experiences. So, so there is the, the regular, you know, you can volunteer to work the front desk. You can volunteer to um, do some tabling events type of volunteer work. But there's other stuff, you know, like in terms of our organization, if you have a, a certain skill in a certain area, we want to know about that. So what we're asking people is to get to know us by way of giving us a call or emailing us, checking out our website, checking out our social media. Tell us what you can do for us. Tell us what talent you could bring um, to the center um, and, you know, so that it's a meaningful experience for you, not just what you want, though. It can't be, and we're not going to, you know, say, I want to come and volunteer and put this mural up. And I'm like, I don't like the mural, not that, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> but, you know, work with us to, uh, you know, kind of like get a, you know, uh, pick up our vibe, you know, maybe, 
you know, we have a blind spot in something that we're not thinking about. We want to hear that. We will put you to work. Oftentimes, if we get a criticism, I love, you know, I don't like getting criticism, but I don't mind it, right? Because it keeps you, it keeps you doing great, right? And so we get a criticism. I love being able to say, you know what? You're right. Are you able to help us change that? Here's what we can do. Here's when we can get, I think we can get it done. I'm guessing, educated guess, what you got? So bring it. We want those volunteers. So what you can do uh, is find out about the center. Go to our website, www.lgbtcleveland.org. Take a look around, peruse it. Don't just skim it. Like really look at it, read it. You know, Google LGBT Community Center of Greater Cleveland, Phyllis Harris or lesbian or something. See what pops up. <laughs> read about it. Read about us. And we'll be coming in to see you once you're open again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We want to. And, um, you know, we have Give Out Day is coming up. I want to give a plug for Give Out Day. Give Out Day is the only national LGBT um, Q day of giving. And so if you look at giving for you fundraisers and LGBT, uh, uh, if you look at giving and LGBTQ giving, um, we don't get a whole bunch of the overall giving. There are some organizations doing work. There's funders for LGBTQ issues and um, a national organization. I don't, they don't, their funding doesn't reach here much, but, but, you know, um, on that day, there's an opportunity for anyone to set up a campaign to benefit any LGBTQ organization um, that registers. So, uh, you know, the, there are organizations around, around me that are smaller. Um, there's one in Lake, there's one in Lorraine, there's one in Fairlawn, and they're doing great work. You know, it, this, this, this grind isn't easy. I sent out an email, did you get registered for Give Out Day? And they're like, oh, yes, because collectively, we want to show that we, we have strength and power and that, you know, this one day a year, you know, um, we are the it queens. You know, we want that. We want we want those donations. And so without day this year is going to typically it's in the spring. It's a spring campaign um, due to COVID. They have pushed the date to June 30th, I think, at the end of June, still in the month of pride. Um, and so, um, focus on give out day, Google give out day and give to an LGBT organization that you care about. And hopefully you'll also give to the center. Um, in addition to that pride, we have the privilege to produce our city's pride event. Um, we've been doing it since 2015 this year, we redated our pride, um, June, the first weekend, um, Saturday in June to September 12th. Now, here's the deal. September 12th is still tentative because we're still getting information about um, COVID. And I'm, for the life of me, could not figure out how to social distance, you know, 20,000 people who showed up, who, who might show up for this event. And I don't even know if they're going to show up for the event. I don't feel like I'm going to a restaurant until September. So anyway, um, I feel like um, I want people, <laughs> what they can do is um, when June comes around, uh, what I want people to do is celebrate your pride. You might not be able to go to a march. You might not be able to go to and kick it at the bars or, or whatever you typically do. But get online and don't be silly. Don't get too close to each other and, and not wear masks and things like that. But um, what I would like for folks to do in support of the LGBT Community Center of Greater Cleveland is to give us a shout out on June 6th, which would have been our, our, our pride event. But 
in general, that month, remember who you are. Remember that we are worthy individuals who deserve the rights and respect. If you want to get involved with the Fairness Act, do that. You know, let's 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 get it in June. That's fantastic. I am so honored that you joined us today. I mean, you know, a lot of the work that we talk about is around political and civic engagement and being able to think about that from an organizational level, from an activist level, level, from a philanthropic level, right? That being part of a community and showing power is turning out to vote, but it's also showing that with your dollars. Um, and so I think it's such a powerful way that you, your organization and the work that you're doing is really, it's just such a, it's a great symbol of all the ways in which you can do civic and political engagement as an individual or as an organization. And so we really, really appreciate you talking with us today. Thank you. This has been a joy. As you can tell, I love my work and I love what I do, love the organization, and I love LGBTQ people, all people. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Seven. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy Podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we talk to Dr. Megan Nowitzki and Professor Joe Mee to discuss the impact of the coronavirus on the health of incarcerated individuals and what we're doing to ensure human and equitable treatment for everyone.